0: Well, for our reading this morning, we're turning to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament as we go through the next week. So we'll be taking some time off Mark's Gospel and spending some time with Isaiah, the prophet. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 19. And we'll read through to chapter 9 of verse 7. Verse 19 of Isaiah chapter 8. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land when they are famished. They will become enraged and looking upwards will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Father, we thank you for this uh, season of Advent, and we pray that you'd focus our hearts on this uh, first Sunday of Advent to uh, hear of your great promise of Christmas, and that we might praise you for that. Help us, now we pray, help us to focus in our hearts and in our minds as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today marks the first Sunday of Christmas, of Advent, which is uh, an exciting thing on the whole, I think. Um, the Christmas lights have been switched on in the park and uh, down, down the high street after uh, Thursday evening. Maybe you've got the tree up at, at home. There's tinsel all around and garlands uh, being put up everywhere. I think it's safe to say the build up has well and truly begun as you see the piles of mince pies and chocolates in the shops. And three weeks tomorrow, 22 days, as we've been reminded this morning, Christmas Day will be here. But for some of us, Maybe the start of of December comes with a bit of a sense of dread at that long list of things that there are uh, to do. Maybe you're a kind of last-minute person. You always have been when it comes to Christmas. And you're thinking about all the things that there are to buy, the people that there are to see. And you know that there's presents you want to get for your friends and your family. You just haven't got round to it yet. Well, you've been reminded, don't worry. 22 days, still plenty of time uh, to do what you need to do. But this morning, as we begin to dwell on the first, uh, on the truth of that first Christmas, I just want us to see and to grasp that there were no last minute plans. There were no changes of schedule that first Christmas. No, over the the next few weeks, we'll be spending our time in the opening verses here of Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, here we'll see the the wonderful promises made uh, made by our our God of of, of who would come and and what he would be called and the, the names that he would be known by. And Isaiah the prophet was writing these things down and was declaring them to the people of God about 700 years or so before that first Christmas. Uh, And so it's showing us, isn't it, that it was the sure and certain fulfillment of God's promises. And this morning, I want us to appreciate the the gracious promise for you and uh, for me that to us, a child is born and to us, a son is given a son is given to us and why that matters in the most monumental of ways for all of us this christmas and as we begin i want us to see why that matters so much because of the context in which this amazing promise is given to us and it's a context that is not that dissimilar to us today and so firstly then let's see in verse 22 of chapter 8 the reality of Darkness, the reality of darkness. The incredible promises of that first Christmas would mean for us as humanity such wonderful things, and yet they're made at a point in time where there is real darkness, real struggle, and despair is the flavor of the day. There's not much sense of hope in the air, things are pretty gloomy, and the outlook is not favorable and maybe that describes where you are at this morning you are going through times of darkness and struggle and despair and as far as you're concerned there's not much in the world or in your life to be hopeful about if that is you then friend come and see what God's word has to say to you this morning the promise of light and joy and hope and it will come but it will come in, in the context of seeming hopelessness and darkness Now, we haven't read the opening eight chapters of Isaiah that come before this, but if you were to go and do that in your own time, a quick skim through those pages would would quickly show you a dark and a gloomy scene, which is summarized in verse 22 of chapter 8. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. We really do not find a pretty picture painted for us, By Isaiah he lists a whole variety of things in the opening eight chapters to show how broken and hopeless and despairing things were and there are all kinds of things so there are examples like people were reliant upon superstitions in chapter 2 and and verse 6 he tells us that people were relying on baseless things for direction and purpose and that's not unlike today. Well, there's a lot of money to be made in horoscopes and people read their star signs. They read those for what they should do. A lot of people every day that you meet in the streets, you know, they're carrying around crystals for positive energy. Things like that. Not dissimilar to today. Or there was materialism. Isaiah speaks about that in chapter 2 and verse 7 or chapter 5 and verses 8 and 9. The focus of people was mainly on what they have. They were never satisfied, always wanting more. And more, another house here, another field there. Not unlike today, when we've probably never had so much stuff in the Western world. There's a concern of so many to have a bigger house, to have a newer car, to have the latest phone, have the highest salary possible, to save for the biggest pension that you can afford. Or there was idolatry. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 20. People were bowing down to the works of their hands. They worship the created instead of the creator. Not unlike today, where all around us we see people, for, they're living for anything and everything apart from God himself. Oh, there was arrogance. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Chapter 5, verse 15. We little tiny specks that are human beings, we thought more of ourselves than we should have, putting ourselves above God. And making ourselves number one. Not unlike today. Where the arrogant spirit of humanity sees to it that there's no need for God. It's very much present still in our day, isn't it? Or there was a lack of good leadership. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. There were those who were ruling in such a self-centered way. And it led to the Lord saying he was going to overthrow those who were in power. Not unlike today. I'm not making any political points, but whatever party you support or don't, and I think it's safe to say that as you look at every ruler of any nation throughout all of history, there's always been a self-serving interest to some extent. People want to win another election, don't they? Even in the church, throughout the centuries, we don't escape the charge of self-serving interest. So much harm is done when there is a lack of good leadership. And that leads to another thing Isaiah mentions in chapter 5, verse 3 society is disintegrating, where people will oppress each other, he writes, man against man, neighbour against neighbour, the young will rise up against the old, the nobody against the honoured. Not unlike today, in some respect, is it? I don't think I'd be pessimistic enough to say that society is disintegrating. We do know a measure of peace and calm in our land, but there's certainly angst and there is violence Uh, It's seen on a regular basis in our Western world, whether that's the more extreme riots like we've seen in Dublin in the last couple of weeks or in Ely and Cardiff earlier this year or in Mayhill, not far away in Swansea last year, or the daily news of murders and attempted murders on the streets in the UK. I think we can safely agree that society is not perfect. Or their sensuality. Verses 16 to 26 of chapter 3 an immoral flaunting of the human body, the body was seen as nothing more than an object, which has led to all kinds of societal issues. Not unlike today, where we're reaping the seeds of the sexual revolution of the 60s, where there's an objectification of sex, and we are seeing the sad and sorry yet inevitable outcome of when sex is not treated rightly as a precious gift from God that is to be enjoyed in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Or, there was alcoholism. Chapter 5, verses 11 to 13. Verse 22, in the words of Isaiah, people were known as heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. It's not unlike today. When in a recent national survey for Wales, approximately 10% of the population in Wales say that they drink alcohol every day of their lives. Every day. Nothing wrong with some alcohol sometimes, should you wish, but this is speaking about absolute dependency on drinking and not being able to go a day without it. Now, I think you get the point (laughs) by now. It really was not a pretty picture there was so much going wrong in Isaiah's day. It was such a sad and sorry state. And on top of all of that, they knew the very real threat of, of the very cruel Assyrian Empire invading them. They'd already attacked some of the northern inhabitants of Israel around Galilee and taken them into exile. And so all of that, eight chapters in a few minutes, is why verse 22 is such a good summary. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they would be thrust into utter darkness. This is not a physical darkness that we're getting familiar with at the moment. We're reaching for the light switch at four o'clock because it's getting dark. Might well be doing that up to the 21st of December. But this verse is not speaking about a physical darkness. It's speaking about a spiritual darkness. A darkness where life is full of hopelessness. Uh, A life that is despairing. And yet, despite the reality of this hopeless despair of the opening chapters of Isaiah, chapter 9 begins like this. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. In the past, those regions, Zebulun, Naphtali, in the northern part of Israel, they'd known gloom. Towns and villages had been destroyed. People had been taken away into exile. They'd they'd been resettled hundreds of miles away from their home. The people had ignored God's word through his prophets, and they were carried off into exile by the king of Assyria. There was darkness, and there was gloom all around. Not unlike today, not because it's darker in December, but because darkness is a a biblical picture of the darkness of all those who are living their lives without God. Because a life without God is a life without hope. Such people are described by Paul in Ephesians 4 and verse 18 as those who are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. The world as it is, the brokenness that we see all around us in communities and families and even on the international stage, every single in this world, every single person in this world acts and behaves as they do because they're they're blindly living in darkness. Their hearts are hardened. There is disorder. There is upheaval in our nation and, and across the world. There is distress and upset in the lives of so many, maybe even our own this morning because this world is in the darkness of sin which isn't exactly the cheery, snug Christmas tree by the fire postcard picture scene to think about as we begin Advent, is it? So you'd be glad to know that that's enough of the, the dark context of our passage this morning. But I wanted to stress this because it's only against the backdrop of darkness that the bright promise of God shines all the brighter. Indeed, it helps us to appreciate that in our day and our age, against the many Similar challenges that we are facing and the exact similar challenge of the reality of sin. The promises of God are as true and as relevant and are as needed now as they were then. And so I wonder if, as you listen to this today, friend, you realize that you are living in the dark. living in the dark if you are without God this morning. Are you living a life separated from God today? You might like to think that that long list of things that Isaiah describes through these opening chapters is of how things were back then. It doesn't describe you this morning. But nothing is new under the sun. And though, though you might seem like an outwardly decent person, inside all of us have got arrogant hearts. We're all prone to self-centeredness, to put other things above God. We all too easily lust after other things we shouldn't. We lack self-control. I wonder when you confess this morning that you're living in the darkness of your sin. You aren't living the life that you were made for. And that is why you need the hope of the promise of God this morning. If you will recognize that, then you need not despair. But you must realize that you are without hope. You are without hope in this world. But at Christmas, we have the greatest reason. To hope in all the world. And that is because against this dark backdrop of gloom and despair. We find Isaiah's prophecy of great light coming into the world. It is into the darkness that God makes this promise. And though darkness is seen as we look at the state of our world today. And we recognize it in our own lives. We have this great word. Nevertheless. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless. Light and joy will come. In darkness, And that's our second point this morning, in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 9, light and joy will come in darkness. It really will, and that is because chapter 9 begins with that wonderful word, nevertheless. And nevertheless, we have an amazing promise unfold before us here, a promise which is as much for us this morning as it was for those first hearers. And how can I say that? Well, did you notice in verse 1, that small phrase, Galilee of the nations, or maybe your Bible says Galilee of the nations. Of the Gentiles. It's only Isaiah who calls Galilee in this way. He, he broadens his vision, not just to include the Jewish people that were being directly spoken to, but all non Jewish peoples as ones to whom this promise is made. And that's because this promise is for the world, because the one at the center of the promise is also the one who is for the whole world. The hope of the one who is to come, the hope filled promise of that first Christmas, not limited to a select group of people. There's a worldwide dimension to this promise we find here that's reaching even to us here in Gesinan this morning. And so here we're confronted with a hope-filled promise. A promise that says, despite the darkness, nevertheless, there is hope. A promise that says, no matter how dark it might be, however gloomy you feel things might be, there is hope. And so you and I this morning, we can either sink into despair or we can rise to hope. And here in verse one, Isaiah writes that for those who were in distress, there will be no more gloom. There will be light. There will be joy. There will be peace. And this glorious light and inexpressible joy will, will come into the darkness. And we see that in verses two to six. Let's take a look at what we read there in verses two and three. The people are walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Those who had been living out their lives in darkness, they've seen a great light. Light here, as throughout the Bible, stands for God's blessing, his presence, his revelation. As we read in 1 John 1 and verse 5, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And this light has shone in the land of the shadow of death. Light has shone in the midst of darkness, of a world tarnished and broken by sin, feeling the full effects of the fall of humanity traced back to Genesis 3. And yet, despite the reality of darkness that we've considered already, in the presence of sin and corruption and even the threat of an invading army, hope is here declared by Isaiah. And what is striking about this is that it is something that is certainly going to happen. It's going to happen in the future, and yet it's spoken of in the past tense. Spoken of as if it's already happened. Did you see that in verse 2? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Even though it's still to come, they've seen it. It is as good as done. That's the certainty of the hope. It is sure and it is certain they've already seen it. And the consequence of seeing this light is that the Lord increases our joy and his people rejoice before him. That is the result of seeing this light as the Lord opens up a new future where gloom once existed. It's seen in the two descriptions of verse 3 that this joy is like that when people rejoice at the harvest and when warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Both the harvest of land and the, the victory in battle... Both those things are gifts from God when they happen. And when they do happen, they're enjoyed by everybody, aren't they? No one is exempt from it. It's not just a farmer who rejoices in a good harvest. Of course he does, but, but a whole community rejoices because they know that there's going to be food now on the table for everyone. In the same way, it's not just soldiers or the generals who rejoice when an army wins a battle. But the whole nation rejoices because it means the country is safe and is protected. So this rejoicing expresses a joy that is absolutely complete and is known by all. The light coming into the world is going to result in a real lasting joy being known and expressed by many people. It is a promise that out of real darkness, joy is going to come and it can be known by you. How do we know that? Well, Isaiah expands and explains what it looks like in verses 4 and 5. For, as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Those are two references to what's gone on in the past, to the historical experience of Israel. One is from the time of slavery in Egypt and the exodus that followed. We see that in the destruction of the yoke and the bar and the rod. Those were things that were used to oppress and used on those slaves in Egypt. But now they've been shattered because the Lord has rescued them out of slavery, out of the hand of the Egyptians in an incredible act of redemption that we read all about in those opening chapters of Exodus. And so this hope of the past is the firm foundation for the hope of the future the hope of redemption out of Egypt is the background to the joyful promise of light coming into the world and of one who will come and execute a greater redemption. But there's another piece of history here. Along with this reference to Egypt, we've got a mention of Midian. Another illustration from history that points us to what is to come and is why we can be filled with hope. The Midianites were defeated by Gideon, Judges 6 to 8. If we don't know that account, then... I'd encourage you to go and read it. It's an incredible against all odds victory for Gideon. He's in charge of 300 men and he defeats an army of at least 120,000. Also, amazing about it is that it's a staggering work of God who reduces the army by 99% from 32,000 to 300 so that there's going to be no boasting of strategy or any human strength at all. Now, all the credit and all the praise goes to God in the victory over the Midianites. And the point being made is that that victory, that redemption, that freedom from suffering, it's all going to come in this promised work of God. It's all of him, and it's all sure, and it's all certain. Military equipment's burned. There'll be no more of it. There'll be no more battles. There will be peace. There will be victory, which the Lord will win on our behalf. And you might be thinking at this point, well, this is all very interesting, but this doesn't sound very Christmassy. What's it all got to do with Christmas? Well, knowing light and joy and hope in our lives, it sounds good. No longer knowing darkness and suffering. Well, that would be great. But how does it all come about? Well, don't we all want light in darkness? Don't we all want hope? Don't we all want to know a tangible joy in our lives? Not superficial happiness that masks how we really are, but a deep-seated attitude that we adopt, not because everything is going well in life, but because of our hope in the deep love and faithful promises of God. Well, isn't that what we see at the first Christmas? That first Christmas sees light and joy and hope coming into the world. And all of these questions, they find their answer in a person. It's found in a child who was born and in a son who was given. And so having seen the reality of darkness and that light and joy coming in darkness, thirdly and finally this morning, I want you to know that a son has been given to you. A son has been given. A child has been born. This dawning of light, this this coming of hope, this reality of joy, this end to suffering, it all finds its fulfillment in a baby, in a child being born, as in Isaiah writes here in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. To us, the nations, a child is born. And we're not told anything here about what he will do in the first instance, simply that he will come. He will be born, and in his birth, everything else will surely and certainly come, as was promised. Light and joy and hope will come because a child is born. Do you see the grace of God here as he makes this promise to us? To us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. It's a short and yet an eternally significant phrase where we see that a real baby will be born of human descent. He really will be born as a child to human parents. But he will also be given by the Lord. Be given. This child who is born is a gift from God. And whenever we see the word give or given, we see the word grace. We see a wonderful gift of grace as a son is given. That is the grace of God giving us his best, giving us a son who will bring about peace and joy and light and hope in a dark world. Some 700 years or so before the first Christmas, we have the promise that hope is coming in the birth of a baby. And again, like we saw earlier, though this is something that was yet to happen in Isaiah's day. It hadn't happened yet. And yet this is said as if it has already happened. That's how sure we can be. It's because a child is born to us. It's because the world is given a son. One who will come and rule and reign with all authority and the government will be on his shoulders. And this child sounds pretty impressive, doesn't he? You could think it's a lot uh, to live up to. Sometimes children who become famous in films or in the music industry They're so young and they become famous so quickly and they don't carry on because the fame becomes too much. They kind of go off the rails because of all the enormous attention that they get. But who's this promised child? Who is this son that the Lord will give? Well, the promise of God's word that a child will be born and son will be given, that you and I might know hope and light and life and joy, is found and is fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these verses speak so clearly of him, and we'll see that as we consider his names in the coming uh, messages. But here in verse 6, 700 years before it happens, we're being pointed forward to a birth of a baby in Bethlehem. We're being made to look forward to the incarnation itself. We're being encouraged to look out in anticipation for the light of the world who would come and would shine in the darkness. It is this Jesus alone who can give us hope and can give us joy. He is the light of the world and the darkness of our broken world and sin of our own lives. It can only be banished in him. He is the very reason there is even Christmas at all. And here, 700 years before he came into the world and God the Son took on human flesh, the faithful God of promise is assuring us that he is in control And he will give us his best to deal with the plague of darkness that infects everyone to once and for all deal with our sin. (coughs) Hopefully the picture painted for you this morning shows you just how needy you really are. Now we are sinners in the sight of God and because we were in very great need, we were promised 700 years or so beforehand and then we were given a very great gift in a child. Being born as a son is given to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't God so kind that he saw your need and has given you the greatest gift that he ever could? I'm sure you give some thoughtful presents over the next weeks. And and some of them could get an amazing reaction. And yet no present that you'll ever buy will ever come close to this gift of grace that Jesus, our Redeemer, really is. And so, Christian, as we enter into this Advent season, doesn't this lead us to make much of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? As we see the wonder of this promise made and then accomplished and then applied to us, you're just left feeling simply amazed. Doesn't the grace of God amaze you? Aren't you filled with gratitude at, at how much you are loved by the Lord? You led to praise the one who's given you that which you did not deserve at such measureless cost. We need the Lord's help, don't we? That we might be moved in in amazement and in gratitude and in praise this morning. Because God loves you so deeply that he has in his grace given us the greatest gift that could ever be given to us. And so you can be encouraged this morning to hold fast to this truth. When you are struggling to trust God's promises... And maybe you're in that place this morning, but whenever you are unsure if they could really be for you, whenever you falter over whether or not Jesus has come, that you might know your sins forgiven, and that you might be able to enter into a relationship with the God who made you and knows you, well, then you remember this first Christmas. You remember the gracious gift that was promised in a child to be born and a son to be given. And when you do that, you're reminded that Christmas is the guarantee. You really can trust the goodness of God. You can trust in God's goodness because we see it displayed so clearly in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, of this Son who is given. That's what we're seeing here in Isaiah chapter 9. And as we close, friend, I have to ask you if you know this Jesus. Do you trust in him? Do you believe that Christmas is all about Jesus Christ? A child born, a son given out of the earth deserved immense grace and kindness of God to deal with your sins. You know the wonderful grace that has been given to you that you don't deserve in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust that you do. And as we return to these verses this evening and in the next couple of weeks, my prayer is that all of us we might have a clearer vision of the Lord Jesus, and that we might follow Him closer at the end of this Advent season than we do now at the beginning. Will you join me in praying for that too, for each other? That each of us would grow closer to Jesus this Christmas. And maybe even that you would start to trust in him for the very first time. That we would all be full of thanks and praise and adoration to our God. That out of the gloomy darkness, we've seen a great light. All because a child has been born and a son has been given to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gracious... Promises that you have made and kept in that first Christmas as you gave us your best. You have given us the Lord Jesus Christ as he was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And we thank you for the light and joy and hope that we can know out of darkness this Christmas in him. We pray that you would help all of us to trust in your great and precious promises. That we would trust in your son and be moved today at your grace. That we might thank and praise you more. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.